Abrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. We thank you for this evening, this opportunity to gather together to open your word, to study your word, to be fed by your word. Father, I pray that you breathe life into your word as we ingest it. Father, that you speak into our hearts and our lives. I pray that you open our ears, the ears of our heart, to receive from you tonight. Let your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit, be sparked within us to receive from you as you have breathed these words into the, uh, the, the hearts of those that penned them, Father. Let the, the breath that breathed those words breathe it into our hearts and our souls and make it a part of who we are as we dig into your scriptures this evening. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen. So, we are in session seven this evening of a Ruach Encounter. Um, we will be now breaking into the Brecha the New Covenant Writings, the New Testament, uh, as it's more prominently known, uh, known. And we will be digging this week and next week into Yeshua and how Yeshua um, operated in the Ruach HaKodesh. And, and so as kind of a, uh, an introduction, a setup, I want to really backtrack and thought briefly and go over some of what we've dealt with already in this study on the Ruach HaKodesh. And we know from the, the very first class, and again, if you have missed any of these, please go back and listen to the podcasts. They've all been posted and, uh, and are available for, for listening online, for downloading, uh, and so on. Uh, go back and listen to each of them, refresh your, your minds on what was said as we dig through the study. But we uh, the very first week, we looked specifically at creation and the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit in creation. We looked at Genesis 1 um, and, and the fact that God created us for His presence, to be in His presence, to interact with His presence. We looked at how when we sinned, when as humanity we chose to allow sin and to allow the temptation of the enemy into our lives, that we actually gave the authority, the dominion, the power that God spoke and gave to Adam and to Eve over the things of this world. Remember he said, I am giving all dominion over things of this world to, to you. He gave that to us. We then relegated it to the enemy because we gave him the power and the authority that was rightfully ours by our creator. Um, and everything that has happened since Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden has happened for the purpose of restoring us as creation back into the presence of the Lord, restoring us as creation back into the role of power and dominion authority over things of this world. Hence, in the, the Lord's Prayer, um, we say, Father, your will be done in, uh, on earth as it is in heaven, right? Well, God's got dominion over the heavenlies. He's got dominion, authority, power of the heavenlies. He has given us dominion, authority, and power over the earthly. And the actual actual uh, actualization, the, the reality of that power, that authority, that dominion that we have can only be experienced, can only be operated in through the Ruach HaKodesh, through the Holy Spirit, which is the divine presence of the Lord residing within us. Right, So we were kicked out of the garden. We were no longer allowed to be in his presence. Then he gave us the command to build the tabernacle so that his presence could be in our midst. We could not be in the midst of his presence, but his presence was then to dwell in our midst. We move forward to the Brechadashah, the new covenant writings, his Holy Spirit is outpoured so that his presence now not only resides in the midst of the camp, 
but now resides in the midst of our hearts, we still cannot be in His presence in the literal sense as we were created for the garden and will be restored again in that presence in the end when we were in heaven for all eternity. Uh, but we now have His presence literally within us. We don't have to go to the tabernacle or the temple to experience His presence. It is a part of who we are. And so there's this work of restoration, this work of reestablishment of the dominion that God has given us over things of this world. And by the way, things of this world, we're not talking animals and plants and things like that specifically, although we do have dominion over those things. We're at the top of the food chain, right? Uh, but, but aside from that, what it's really dealing with is death, sin, temptation, sickness. These are all things of this world, right? They're not things of heaven, Death and sickness and despair and anxiety and, and, and uh, uh, psychopathic issues and things like These are not things of heaven, are they? These are things of this earth. They're things that are in this world because we allowed sin and the consequence of sin to be a part of it. And God has, as believers, in putting His Ruach HaKodesh, His Holy Spirit within us, has restored our dominion over the things of this world. So when we see Yeshua and the Talmudim, the disciples, healing people, uh, they're doing so in the authority we have been given over things of this world. So in the first week, we dealt with creation and God's uh, efforts to restore us and to what He created us to be. In the first place, the second week, we dealt with the Ruach HaKodesh, the mantle of the Ruach HaKodesh upon Moses and how the Ruach was placed upon him, that mantle of the Ruach was placed upon him so that he could then go and lead the people of Israel. And we see how he led through the leading of the Ruach HaKodesh, leading in the Holy Spirit. The third week we dealt with the 70 elders and how the Ruach was, uh, a portion of the mantle was taken off of Moses and placed upon the 70 elders. So we see this image throughout the scriptures of the mantle of the Ruach. Uh, from one to the next, so that mantle was taken off Moses, put on the 70 elders. They were then enabled to speak in tongues and prophesy, right? Which is really awesome. Two of the gifts that we read about in the scriptures that they were able to do. And those that were unfamiliar with what was happening were scared to death, right? Joshua comes running, hey, Moses, these two dudes are out here speaking in tongues and prophesying, and they're scaring people. Tell them to stop. And Moses says, no, I wish that all would do this. By the way, the same words Paul says, I wish that all would do this. Um, and so we see that mantle transference. We see the mantle from Moses to Joshua in week four, um, and Joshua being raised up to be the next leader of Israel, and that mantle of the Ruach, that mantle of the Spirit placed upon him so that he had the ability to lead Israel as God was leading. And we talked about Moses, uh, we moved from, from Moses and uh, the 70 elders and Joshua to uh, the, the prophet Samuel and the kings, the first three kings of Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon, and the mantle of the Ruach that was upon them. We see that there's the mantle of the Ruach upon Samuel, and then he anoints Saul, and he anoints David, and uh, Solomon is ultimately anointed uh, with the mantle of the Ruach, a Kodesh, to do what God ordained and appointed them to do. Um, and then last week, we dealt with Elijah and Elisha and the mantle of the Ruach. And interesting, we, we specifically chose to have Elijah and Elisha be the last of what we deal with the Tanakh before we move into the Baruch HaDashah because of this singular purpose. Elijah operated in the Ruach HaKodesh, right? Prophesied, healed, did some really awesome signs and wonders, right? But what is it that it, it says happened when the mantle was moved from, jo from Elijah to Elisha? It says Elisha received a double portion, right? What is it Yeshua says to his disciples before he dies? 
says, when the Comforter comes, when the Ruach HaKodesh comes, you will be able to do even greater things than I did. Elisha did greater things than Elijah did. It was a foreshadowing of what Yeshua was talking about when he said we would be able to do even greater things than he did. Anybody figure out how to top raising people from the dead? I haven't figured that one out yet. That one seems to be a little bit difficult, but, uh, but it's, it's a powerful reality that has been given to us that the Lord gives us the, the foreshadowing of. He gives us the, the setup for Elijah and Elisha, uh, the type and shadow of what we as believers, as disciples of Talmudim, of Messiah, what we are able to do because that double portion is in fact upon us, right? Um, it's a powerful image. So this week we are going to be diving into looking at the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, in the Brechadashah, in the New Covenant writings, the New Testament writings, and in particular for this week and next Tuesday night we will be looking at Yeshua. This week we're going to be looking at the mantle of the Ruach upon Yeshua. Next week we will be looking at um, Yeshua operating in the Ruach HaKodesh, operating in the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and as followers of Messiah, as Tamadima Messiah, I can't think of a better way to, to do this than to spend a greater amount of time on the one who we are to emulate, the person of Yeshua Mashiach, when we're dealing with this discussion of the Holy Spirit, because we have a double portion of what was on him, so we should see what he's doing, how he did it, how the Spirit operated through him so that we can learn how to walk in that Spirit in our own lives, amen? So we're going to primarily be looking at two passages of Scripture. They're, they're somewhat mirror images of each other, um, and those two passages of Scripture are Matthew 3 and 4 and Luke 3 and 4. And so uh, as we look at this, this is kind of that, that um, uh, defining moment, if you would, in which we see the uh, outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh upon Yeshua. Now we know specifically Yeshua is God himself robed in flesh. So the Ruach HaKodesh is a part of who he is, right? But we see this literal enacting of the mantle, and it's important that we hold on to that concept that we've been hitting on for the last six weeks, the mantle of the Ruach HaKodesh placed on Yeshua, because although Yeshua is God, he's also 100% man, right? 100% God, 100% man. It's a complicated thing to wrap our heads around, and I don't think we'll ever understand it until we're sitting at his feet for all eternity. Um, I don't think it'll be until then that we'll have the capacity to try and understand it. Um, but he's 100% God, 100% man, and so that mantle of the Ruach had to be uh, placed upon him as man in the same way it was upon all the men that came before him that operated in the Ruach HaKodesh. So in, uh, in Matthew 3 and 4, Luke 3 and 4, we all are familiar with the story, I hope we're familiar with the story, of Yeshua being immersed by Yochanan Hamatbil, by Yochanan the Immerser, right? And, and Yochanan John the Immerser, uh, often called John the Baptist, uh, not Baptist as in First Baptist or Second Baptist, or, but, but Baptist as in he immersed people, which is why it's Hamatbil, the Immerser, um, and where the, the idea of him being the baptizer, I guess would be more accurate, John the Baptizer would be more accurate than John the First Baptist. Um, but, <laughs> but as we look at this, in, uh, in, in the Gospels, we see John is the cousin of Yeshua, right? John's the cousin of Yeshua. We also see that Yeshua says that he, is the, uh, he has the spirit of Elijah coming back again, right? The prophecy says that Elijah will come again and will, will announce the coming of Messiah, Right? And what is it that John the Immerser does? He, he announces that coming the Messiah, right? He says, look, I'm immersing you in water right now, but the one who is greater is coming, and he's going to immerse you in the Ruach HaKodesh and in fire, right? He says, look, water is one thing, but this dude's going to take it a whole other level. Um, and, and we see that Yeshua says, he was the spirit of Elijah. They said, are you the one we're waiting for? John's uh, uh, um, uh, 
Talmudim, his disciples, are you the one we're waiting for? Or are we still waiting for one to come? And he goes, hey, John the, had the spirit of Elijah on him, and, and, uh, and Israel was just not ready to see it. And so we know that he came to announce the coming of Messiah, the coming of the Lord, and that's exactly what happened. But Israel just wasn't ready to see it. And so we see that when uh, uh, John's mother, uh, Elisheva, Elizabeth, was carrying him, and when uh, Yeshua's mother, Miriam, Mary, was carrying him, that as Miriam walked into Elisheva's house, that uh, Yochanan John began to jump in the belly of Elizabeth because in walks the presence of the Lord within this con- human container of Miriam, of Mary. And the Spirit was already upon John. It's interesting to note the Spirit was on him in the womb, right? That's a powerful statement. The Spirit was already upon John. And when Yeshua walked in the, well, was carried into the room in the womb, John in the womb begins to jump uh, and recognizes the greatness of the presence of the Lord in, in their midst. And so John already has this, this unique anointing on him. And so John goes, and, and his purpose, he's a prophet. His purpose, he was a prophet, he was a, um, a, 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 a Nazarite, uh, uh, took the Nazarite vow, um, and, and as a, a, a Nazarite, his, his desire was to serve the Lord, his aim was to serve the Lord, and he was a prophet. And he went about and called people to do what? To repent, right? We spoke before that, that when the Spirit of God comes on us and we begin to prophesy, that prophecy is not just foretelling. It's not, it's not shaking at a magic eight ball and waiting for the answer to pop up on the screen. It's not looking at some crystal ball and whatever's happening inside and waiting for an answer to come. Prophecy is declaring the word of the Lord. And if we look at the scripture, the overwhelming word of the Lord more often than anything else is one simple thought, repent and return to me, right? And this is the message that the prophet Yohanan Hamadbil kept speaking, repent and return back to the Lord. So in chapter three, verse uh, one, we see in those, uh, this is Matthew, I'm sorry, chapter three, verse one, it says, in those days, John the Immerser came proclaiming in the wilderness of Judea, turn away from your sins for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and return. Turn away from your sins for the kingdom of heaven is near. For he is the one, Isaiah the prophet spoke about saying, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of Adonai and make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing from camel's hair and leather belts around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey, and I feel bad for him. <laughs> locusts, the honey wouldn't be so bad. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all of Judea and all the region around the Jordan confessing their sins. They were being immersed by him in the Jordan River. In other words, they were returning back to God. They were being immersed in the waters of cleansing. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his immersion, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit worthy of repentance, and do not think that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that from these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. Already the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And that is not a message specifically for the Pharisees or the Sadducees. That is also an equally valuable message for believers. If we as believers are not producing fruit, the axe is to the, the it's ready to take us down. The scripture tells us, how do we know those that are bought by the blood of the lamb, but by the fruit that they produce? So as believers, if we are not producing fruit, we are no better than the Sadducees and Pharisees. Verse 11, as for me, I immerse you in water for repentance, but the one coming after me is mightier than I am 
I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will immerse you in the Ruach HaKodesh, in the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he shall clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chafe, the, the, the chaff, uh, he, he shall burn up with an extinguishable, an inextinguishable fire. Um, and then all of a sudden, verse 13, almost immediately in the text, I don't know that this necessarily happened immediately in real life, but almost immediately in the text, the very next thing we read, then Yeshua came from the Galilee to John to be immersed by him in the Jordan. But John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be immersed by you and you're coming to me? But Yeshua responded, let it happen now for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So John yielded to him. After being immersed, Yeshua rose up out of the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Ruach Elohim, the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice from the heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. As we look through every account in the scriptures, whether it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, any account of anyone used by God in Scripture, there's a defining moment in their life in which you know the Lord called them, in which you know that they succumbed to the leading of the Lord, that they laid their will down to follow the will of the Lord, right? We see it. With Abraham, it was when the Lord said, get up and go. And Abraham got up and went, didn't ask questions. The Lord said, I'll take you somewhere you've never seen before, away from your father's household, away from your father's gods, and you'll serve me there, and I will give it all to you and your descendants for eternity. And Abraham got up and left. No questions, just left. Uh, Isaac, I believe Isaac's moment was during the Akeda, the binding of Isaac on Mount Moriah when he was tied down to the altar by his father, and his father was prepared to offer his life. If you look at the age difference, Isaac was a young man. Isaac was not a little boy. Isaac was likely in his 20s or 30s. Uh, I think it'd be awesome if he was 33 just because of the connection and correlation with Yeshua, but that's a whole other story. Um, But Isaac was a young man. So however old he was, let's say he was 30, that means that uh, Abraham at the exact same time was 130, right? 130-year-old man is not putting a 30-year-old man down on an altar and tying him down if he's not allowed to, all right? My dad's only 20 years up on me, and there's not a chance that's happening unless he knocks me out or kills me first. Uh, That's just the reality of life. Isaac allows his father to tie him to that table, even after on the journey up the mountain, he says, Pop, I see we got the fire, we got the wood, but where's the offering? I think he knew what was going on. I think he knew the burden on his father's heart. And his father said, don't worry, son, God will provide himself a lamb. God will provide him, not God will provide a lamb for himself. In the Hebrew, it says God will provide himself a lamb. Yeshua comes down, God himself robed in flesh as our sacrifice lamb. Notice when they get up to the mountain and the thicket was not caught a lamb, the thicket was caught a ram. Abraham was speaking the future. Isaac allowed himself to be tied to that altar. And notice we never read, other than the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, we never read a moment in Isaac's life where he had a defining moment with God like we do with uh, Jacob. 
Jacob, we see that defining moment with God. He wrestles with God, right? We see that defining moment. You don't see that with Isaac. You see that defining moment with Abraham. The defining moment in Isaac's life was the Akeda, the binding, and it was a foreshadowing of the correlating story of Yeshua on the stake. Yeshua had to willingly lay his life down in order to be our sacrifice, our offering, in order to be our lamb, in order to be God providing himself a lamb. He had to be willing to lay his life down. There was an act of the Ruach HaKodesh leading him and him setting his will aside. So as we look through this, every moment in Scripture we see a defining moment. With Moses, that defining moment was on, the, on uh, Mount Sinai, Mount uh, um, Horeb, Mount Sinai. And on that mountain, he's got his father-in-law's sheep and he's herding them along and then there's this awkward bush burning. And it's not being consumed. And he walks over to the bush and out of the bush. And we know scripturally, the image of fire is an image of what? The Holy Spirit, right? Throughout scripture, we see this image of fire in the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Lord. And out of the presence. So here stands a man before the presence of the Lord, the fire, the Ruach HaKodesh, hearing the voice of the Lord calling him forward. What Yeshua experiences, what Yochanan Hamadbil, John the Immerser, sees as the heavens open up and the dove, uh, the spirit descends on Yeshua as a dove. Uh, I, I don't think that they literally saw a dove, but they saw something floating down on him like a dove gracefully flying in the wind. God uses language in human terms that are as beautiful as we can possibly qualify to explain things that are heavenly and beyond anything that human language can explain. All right? So he tells us in the most beautiful terms we can, like streets paved with gold. Anybody really that invested in whether or not the streets of heaven are paved in gold? I could care less. I just want to be in the presence of God for eternity. But he tells us the streets are paved in gold. Why? Not because they necessarily are. I mean, they could be, but not because they necessarily are. It's allegory. Because that's the, gold is the most beautiful thing we can conceive in humanity. That is the most beautiful language or beautiful thing we can conceive in human language is streets paved with gold. But in heaven, it's so much greater than that. And God goes, you can't understand the infinite, so I'll explain it the best I can in the finite. Streets are paved with gold. And so they see this, the Spirit descend on Yeshua, the mantle of the Ruach HaKodesh descend on Yeshua like a dove, and then they hear the voice of the Lord speak forth. Yeshua is having a Mount Sinai experience. This is man, Yeshua, standing before the presence of the Lord, hearing the voice of the Lord calling him forward. He's having a Moses experience, a Mount Sinai experience. He's having a Mount Sinai experience as Israel saw on the mount of the, descendant of the, 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 the descendants of the presence of the Lord and the mountain was on fire and the heavenly shofar blast and the voice of the Lord speaking forth. He was having a Sinai experience before everyone. They all saw it. And Yeshua says, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Notice how similar those words are to what we long to hear at that judgment throne. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Right? The reality is, is this is the very defining moment of Yeshua's life as human. This is the defining moment of Yeshua's life receiving the mantle of the Ruach HaKodesh. This is the beginning of his ministry. For the, <coughs> excuse me, for the next three years, Yeshua is wandering Judea and Samaria, and he's ministering, and he's healing, and he's delivering, and he's promising and prophesying of what is to come, and he's drawing those into his circle. 
that will ultimately be saved. Now, they can't be saved until he dies because that blood is necessary for salvation. But he's drawing those into his circle that will be saved, that will then go out and impact the world around us, those that will receive the Great Commission, those that will receive the double portion of the mantle that is now upon him. This is that defining moment in his life. And the very next thing we read is in chapter 4, then Yeshua was led by the Ruach, by the Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And when the tempter, the enemy, came to him, he said, If you are Ben Elohim, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, the reality is, is was the enemy saying anything that was untrue? The enemy, in order for it to be tempting, it's got to at least be somewhat true, right? right? The enemy says, hey, sleep with that chick over there. It'll feel really good. It's tempting. Why? Because it's true, or at least could be true. But it's a temptation. That doesn't mean it's real. That doesn't mean it's right. But it could be true. Take these drugs, it'll make you feel really good. And it might for a couple minutes. But it'll ruin the rest of your life. And the enemy is tempting him. He's not saying anything that's necessarily untrue. God could turn stones into bread. God says if we're not going to worship him, he'll make the stones cry out, right? John says if the Pharisees aren't going to serve him right, it's okay. They don't, it doesn't matter if they think they're the sons of Abraham. He'll make the stones rise up as the sons of Abraham, Right? By the way, that was prophecy of drawing the nations in unto himself because Israel did not believe in him as Messiah as they should have, which ultimately was God's plan too, so that the nations could be brought in to drive the Jews to jealousy for their God. So he says, if you are Ben Elohim, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He's got the authority to do so. God can very well do it. It's not untrue. It's just not godly. But he, Yeshua, replied, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and placed him on the highest point of the temple. If you are Ben Elohim, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for, uh, throw yourself down for it is written, he shall command his angels concerning you and upon their hands they shall lift you up so that you may not strike your foot against the stone. Was it untrue? Not at all. It was absolutely true. It was absolutely true. It was just enough truth to be tempting. But it was not God's will. It was not what Yeshua was supposed to do. Just like when the enemy tempts us. Is it wrong? Is it absolutely, definitively untrue? Not at all. It doesn't mean it's God's will. It doesn't mean it's right. Yeshua said, and we notice this time in this temptation, he quotes scripture, right? The enemy knows the Bible. The enemy knows it really well. He knows how to contort it and make us think we, and make it say whatever we want. Like the whole passage of Peter's dream of the, the, the vision of the sheet coming down with all the different unclean animals, right? We can pull that out of Scripture, out of context, and make it say whatever we want. But what it's really talking about is Gentiles coming to the body of Messiah. It's got nothing to do with food. If it did, God would have made them eat. Anybody had an argument with God and won? I haven't. God gets his way. One way or the other, he gets his way. So Yeshua responds, he answers scripture with scripture. Yeshua responds, again it is written, and you shall not put Adonai, your God, to the test. Verse 8, again the devil takes him to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. <clears throat> all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Is that untrue? 
Does the enemy have the authority to give that over? Absolutely. You know why? Because we gave that authority to him. We gave the authority, the rulership, the dominion of things of this world over to him. He had that authority. It was his. Why? Because we relegated it to him. We gave up our authority when we chose to allow sin in our lives. And here is Yeshua, God himself robed in flesh, correcting our mistake. He's hearing the enemy's temptation, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. But contrary to Adam and Eve in the garden, and contrary to your and my walk with the Lord throughout our lives, he's not giving in. He's responding back with the word of the Lord, with the will of the Lord, with the definition of a righteous life before the Lord. Verse 10, he says, Then Yeshua says to him, Go away, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship Adonai your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil leaves him. And behold, angels came and began to take care of him. Notice we go back to the second temptation. If you are Ben Elohim, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall command the angels concerning you, and upon their hands they shall lift you up, so that, they may not strike your, so that you may not strike your foot against the stone. In other words, the angels will come and take care of you, Right? Was it untrue? Not at all, because that's exactly what they did. But it took him following the will of God and denying the enemy's temptation. <coughs> See, the problem with sin, the overwhelming problem with sin, is that sin begins with temptation. We give in to temptation that sin produces a barrier between us and the presence of God. Because the presence of God cannot dwell in the midst of sin. It produces a barrier between us and the presence of God. So when we have and oppression in our lives, when we have something that needs to be delivered in our lives, it inhibits the ability or it inhibits rather the work, not the ability of God's work, but it inhibits the work of God in our lives because we're so buried in this sin, in this temptation, in this thing that is contrary to the image and the likeness of God that we're unable to see the presence of God in our lives. I've talked about this before, Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30, the, the, uh, uh, 27, 28, 29, the, the curses, the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy, right? If you pay attention to them, his blessings say, if you follow me and you obey my word, then I will take care of you, I'll feed you, I'll make sure that you have children, I'll make sure that uh, you don't get sick, I'll make sure that all these things happen, right? I'll take care of you, I'll nourish you. And he says, if, if, if you don't follow my will and my words, if you don't obey my covenant and my commands, then all of those things in reverse will happen. All these bad things will happen to you. The thing we don't realize is, is that God's still providing for us. He's still taking care of us. We just don't see it. You know, when you're walking in sin, when you're walking outside of the will of God, and we've all been there in our walks with the Lord, we're outside of the will of God, right? When we're walking outside of the will of God, our bills are still getting paid, Right? We may not notice it, we may stress over it a lot more, but our bills are still a roof over our head, right? We're still getting food. We may not be thankful or grateful for it, and we may wish there was more, we may wish it was better, but there's still food. There's still provision, he's still taking care of us. The problem is that because the blessings and curses says if we walk in his ways, he will provide for us. If we don't walk in his ways, he won't provide for us, or we won't see his provision. The problem is, is that sin in our lives has caused a barrier between us and the presence of the Lord that we can't see what the Lord's doing in our lives. And he's doing it because he says he'll never leave us or forsake us. So he's taking care of us. We're still bought by the blood of the Lamb. We're still his. And he's still taking care of us. We just don't see it. But when we walk in his ways, when we reject the temptation of the enemy, when we reject sin, we see everything he's doing. 
And it all makes sense. And it all seems even greater than we could have imagined it being, right? And so here the enemy tries to tempt him and says, if you throw yourself off of here, the angels are going to save you. The angels will take care of you. He throws off the enemy's temptation instead. And what happens? The angels come and they take care of him. They protect him. They provide for him. And then he gets through, and the first thing he does is he returns back after the, the, the 40 days in the wilderness. He returns back to uh, his home synagogue and the Galilee, and they open up the, the, the Haftorah scroll, and they ask him to come up and read, and he reads the very prophecy that speaks of his coming. And he says, here, before your very eyes, this has happened. And everybody goes, whoa, wait a second. That seemed authoritative. That seemed real. How do we process this? And then he spends the next three and a half years ministering to the hearts and the lives of Israel. It's a powerful reality. He receives this mantle of the Ruach HaKodesh, and it changes everything. Now, the reason it's so important for us as believers to understand this, the reason it's so important for us as believers to grasp this, to put our heads around it, is because we have been promised that double portion, just like Elijah and Elisha. As we said earlier, Elijah had the Ruach HaKodesh upon him, and Elisha, uh, his trainee, if you would, Elisha receives a double portion of the Ruach HaKodesh, and Elisha does even greater things than Elijah did. Yeshua, God himself robed in flesh, tells us that when the Comforter comes, when the Ruach HaKodesh comes, as it did in Acts chapter 2, that we will be able to do even greater things than he did. In other words, you will have a double portion of the Ruach. A double portion of the Holy Spirit. So if in the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, Yeshua was able to deny the temptation of the enemy, and we're told we have a double portion of that Ruach HaKodesh as believers in Messiah and receivers of the blood of the Lamb, why do we fall prey to His temptation so often? Why do we not walk in the power and authority and dominion we have over things of this world that God has now restored? See, what we see in, in Matthew 4 and, and in Luke with the temptation in Luke 4, what we see is Yeshua is undoing the mistakes and the problems that Adam and Eve made. Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan. Notice he didn't speak untruths to them, did he? He said, did the Lord really say you would die? It was a question. The Lord did say they would die. He didn't say they would drop dead right then, which is what the enemy was saying. Did he really say you would die right now? And they said, well, no, I guess he didn't say we'd die right now. So maybe it's okay, and it does look really good, so let's eat it and see what happens. And they're right. The enemy was right. They didn't drop dead right there, but they did die. Death entered their lives because death is a consequence of sin, and sin is anything we do that damages. I want you to hold on to this. This is my base definition of sin. You can take me to task on it, try and prove me wrong. This is my base definition of sin. Sin is anything in our lives that damages the image of our Creator. Sin is anything in our lives that damages the image of our Creator. We were made in His image and likeness. If somebody looks at our lives and they don't see His image and likeness, there's sin in our lives. Absolute and without a doubt, there is sin in our lives. If they look in our lives and they don't see the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, there's sin in our lives. Without a doubt. There is a giving in to the temptation of Hasitan, of the adversary. He's called the adversary for a reason. And what Yeshua did in the receiving the mantle of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, 
and walking in that mantle in temptation for 40 days is He redeemed our authority, dominion, and rulership over this world that we gave to the enemy, and He took it back. As a human, empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh, He took it back. And He said, now a double portion will be given unto you. He says, you will do even greater things than I have done. If you notice, and we'll deal with this more next week, but if you notice when Yeshua and, and His Talmudim, His disciples, prayed for healing, you ever, you ever paid attention to the way they prayed for healing over people? You ever read Yeshua going, oh Lord, Johnny has this really bad lump on his arm and the doctors are afraid it might be cancer and he's got to go in for this test and that test and, and it could be this or it could be that and, and, and if it is cancer, the Lord, it's going to affect his family because he won't be able to work. He's going to be going through chemo and, and he won't be able to provide for his family and it's going to make it, but if he dies, Lord, it's going to affect so much more and da 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 and, and but Lord, if you would just heal him, then this wouldn't happen because of this and that. Do you ever, you ever see the Lord pray like this? Yeshua pray like this? Did you ever see the disciples pray like this? Yeshua said what? Get up and walk. Open your eyes and see. You know why? Because when we pray like that and we're saying, oh Lord, this is so bad and here's why it's bad and here's why we need you to do this, we're trying to talk our faith up in God's ability to heal. We're trying to talk our faith up, boost our faith in the power and the authority that's been given unto us. But Yeshua said, that we're to emulate him. Yeshua said we received a double portion of what he has. He says we'll be able to do even greater things than he did. So why is it that we as believers don't walk up to people, lay hands on them and say, be healed. In the name of Yeshua and the blood of the lamb, be healed. Enemy, be gone. Right? Why are we so afraid of it? Why do we not have the faith and the mantle of the anointing of the Ruach HaKodesh that is upon us as believers? Why are there so many believers that rather than trying to reevaluate the way we walk in faith in the Lord, we try to explain away the lack of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives by saying that the gifts of the Spirit are not for today? It's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God doesn't say that the gifts of the Spirit ever cease, Right? The Word of God says that we as believers will receive a double blessing of His Ruach. We receive a double manting of His Ruach, mantle of His Ruach, that we will be able to do even greater things than He. That wasn't just said to Peter and to the other disciples. That was said to every believer that followed them. You and I are 2,000 years removed from Peter. We're believers that have followed Him. That Word is as much true to us as it is to anyone else. Yeshua in Matthew 3 and 4 and Luke 3 and 4 uh, Luke 4, rather, in particular, where he's, he's receiving the mantle of the Ruach HaKodesh and he goes out and is tempted by the adversary and the enemy, tempted by the enemy. He overcomes that temptation. Why? Because the mantle of the Ruach was upon him. You got to wonder if Yeshua had not received that mantle, whether he had been so fervent to walk in it there. Now, he's God. It's possible for him to have done it anyways. I'm just saying. As humans, we've got to look at it. We've got to go, if that were me, if I was in that situation and I didn't have the mantle of the Ruach HaKodesh, would I have been able to respond the same way? Heck, I have the mantle of the Ruach HaKodesh and half the time I don't respond that way. More than half the time, probably. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're all in that boat. Yeshua reestablished the power, rulership, and dominion that, that God gave us over things of this world so that we can make things of this world according to the will of God in heaven. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Does God want people to be healed? Yes. In heaven and on earth. 
Does God want people to be saved? Absolutely, because for them to be in heaven, they got to be saved here first, right? We have been given a double portion of the mantle of the Ruach HaKodesh was promised. You think what was on Elijah was powerful? Look at what Elisha did. And yet Yeshua was even greater. And he tells us we'll be even greater. Why do we not walk in it? Why do we not work in it? Why do we not believe in it? Why do we not declare it over ourselves every single day? Why do we not ask the Lord every single day to build our faith in his Ruach HaKodesh in our lives? We ask him to give us patience. We find ourselves in situations where we're patient. I think the reason why, where we have to be patient rather, I think the reason why we don't ask the Lord to build up our faith in his Ruach every single morning is because we know that opportunities may arise where we'll have to use it. And we'll realize maybe our faith wasn't so strong in the first place. That even in being built up that morning, it's still not quite there yet. I worked in restaurants. Have you noticed when Yeshua walked up to, to John, John knew immediately who he was. He recognized him, right? I worked in restaurants for years, for the better part of two decades. And some of you know this already, but for the better part of two decades. And, and some of my favorite experience in restaurants was when people would call me over to their table and they would say, are you, are you Orthodox? I'd say, no, I'm actually a Messianic Jewish rabbi. And they'd go, oh, see, I knew there was something different about you. I could sense there was something different. And it almost always followed with, will you tell us more about what you believe? Will you answer this question? And then something along the lines of, would you pray for us? Would you bless us? You have no idea the amount of people I've had opportunities to minister to. You know what? There are two main rules in the restaurant industry, as a, and I waited tables and bartending. Either way it goes, waiting tables or bartending, there's two main rules. Number one, don't talk politics. Number two, don't talk religion. And the Lord put opportunities to share my faith with my coworkers, with our guests, with other people's guests, over and over and over again. And every opportunity I had, I walked in it. Not because of any other reason than I didn't want to throw away this opportunity the Lord gave me and put them in my path for his purposes. And if I'm going to walk in the greater than that has been given to me, then I have to walk in it faithfully in every situation day in and day out. You ever been in the grocery store standing at the register and felt the Lord tug at your heart to talk to the person behind you? And more often than not, most believers are too shy, too afraid, or uh, too unwilling to, to waste their time, to take the time out of their busy life. I got this waiting on me and that waiting on me, and the kids are there, and, and the husband's in the car, or this is going on, or that's going on, and, and we refuse to take the time to just listen to the Lord. You know, the Lord hit me with this reality a couple of years ago uh, while we were still up in New York. At that point in time, and I don't see it as much anymore, which is great, but at that point in time, it seemed like every day that you looked at the news, there was a story about some guy who got laid off at work. He was in his late 40s, early 50s, got laid off at work, didn't think he'd ever be able to find another job again to provide for his family, and he was too ashamed to deal with what was going on and didn't think there was any future, and he would go home and he would kill his family and kill himself. Murder-suicide was his only solution. And the Lord hit me with this realization. How do we know that that person behind us in the grocery store line that he's tugging at our hearts to minister to, how do we know that that isn't their last chance before they go home and kill themselves? 
How do we know that we have the right at that moment to waste the opportunity the Lord has put in our path to touch somebody's life? Who do we think we are to take that risk? We've been given greater. To whom great more is given, much is expected. We've been given greater. We must operate in it. We complain because we don't see people come to faith in our lives. It's because we don't walk in faith in our lives. We started this whole study on the Ruach HaKodesh from creation to today because we're a congregation that believes fervently in the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh. We believe fervently in the gifts of the Spirit. We believe fervently in that we are living in the latter rain days, that we are seeing revival happen. We've seen people healed. We've seen people delivered. We've seen all of this stuff in our congregation. I believe that there is so much more that we can never imagine that is going to happen. But as a congregation that believes in that, we're also a Messianic Jewish congregation, which means we have people coming from all sorts of different backgrounds. Some are coming from uh, charismatic Pentecostal backgrounds where this is nothing new. We're probably rather tame compared to what some people have experienced in those environments. Um, Then there are others that are coming from backgrounds that don't believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today at all or that the Holy Spirit even operates today. We have people coming from traditional Jewish backgrounds where their idea of the Spirit of God has some connection to some sort of mystical thing in Kabbalah. But the Lord's called us all together for His purposes. And if we believe fervently in the power of the Spirit of God, if we believe fervently in its activity today, and we believe fervently that we are called by God to be used by His Spirit for His purposes today, we've got to understand His Spirit. We've got to understand how to walk in it. We've got to realize there are, there are examples in this Bible, in this book that we read every day, that we talk about all the time, that we love to shove down other people's throats, but we fail to learn how to live by there are examples in this book of how to walk out a life in his Ruach HaKodesh and his Holy Spirit and his power in which his presence now resides within us again. And so we developed this Bible study, this, this lecture-style series on, on the Ruach HaKodesh, the gifts of the Ruach HaKodesh, because if we're going to walk in what the Lord has in store for us to come, it's absolutely necessary that we examine Scripture for how that walk looks. Because there is a mantle of the Ruach HaKodesh upon each and every one of us as believers in Messiah. We may not know what to do with it. We may get a little freaked out about it when it moves, but it's there. And it's our responsibility to give Him free reign in our lives. It's our responsibility to let the mantle that was upon Yeshua, that is a double mantle now upon us, operate through us, looking at Messiah as our example. Looking at Peter as our example, looking at Paul as our example, looking at Elijah and Elisha and Moses and Joshua and the 70 elders, all the way back to Adam and Eve. It's important that we look at Scripture for the example of how to walk these things out. And we can't just develop some hard-pressed theology. Everybody's got to speak in tongues if the Holy Spirit is upon. That's just not biblical. It's just not there. Everybody's got to prophesy. That's also just not biblical. It's not there. I also can't say in total confidence, or any confidence really at all, um, that, that the list of the gifts of the Spirit that we see in Paul's writings, I cannot say in any confidence whatsoever that that is a concise list. I think it's a foundation. I think it's a beginning. Who are we to limit God? Right? I think it's just the beginning. Just the beginning. 
And I think depending on the person, depending on the scenario, and depending on the situation, that the Lord may give each of us different gifts at different times for His purposes. And who are we to tell Him He can't? I know people that when the presence of God falls on them, when the Spirit of God moves, they just, I mean, like water works. It's like somebody, it's like they dove into a, a, a splash pad out a mall or something, like just bawling their face out before the Lord. I know other people that when the Spirit of God moves, they begin to speak in tongues quietly because there's two different types of tongues. We'll get into that in, in two weeks, but there's two different types of tongues scripturally. There's that for the person, personal edification, that for the edification of the community. And if it's for the community, Scripture says there must be interpretation. And I think if, if it's really the Spirit of God, we'll know the difference. I don't think the Spirit of God will lead us to go against the Word of God. I just don't see it. There are times where God enhances His Spirit in our lives to speak healing over someone or to speak deliverance into their lives, to break the chains and the strongholds that they've suffered from for generations upon generations. But no matter the situation, it is our responsibility. As being blessed by the presence of the mantle, the Ruch Kodesh, it is our responsibility to operate in that authority and power that has been given to us. Not for our purposes, our sake. It's not so I can talk you guys into buying me an airplane or some massive motor coach, um, and yes, those were intentionally poking fun at uh, televangelists. Um, but, but it's for the purposes of God. God has a purpose for it and a reason, and it's our job to submit our will to his ways and allow him to operate through us. If we're called to emulate Yeshua, and I'll say this in, in closing, if we're called to emulate Yeshua, if we're called to live our lives in the example of Messiah Yeshua, Yeshua overcame temptation by the power of the Ruach HaKodesh in his life. Yeshua operated in the restored dominion and authority that was given to mankind over the things of this world. We have the requirement by the word of God and the will of God to walk in that same calling, to walk in that example. When the enemy throws temptation in our face, it is our job, it is our responsibility, it is our calling to negate that temptation, to speak against that temptation, to declare the word of the Lord against that temptation. Every sin begins with temptation. I think that's the beauty of Matthew 5 and Yeshua saying, you've heard it said it's a sin to commit adultery, but I tell you, if you've even lusted in your heart, you've already committed it. You've heard it's a sin to commit murder, but if you've even hated in your heart, you've already committed it. All four of those issues are dealt with in the Torah. There are commands against all four of those issues already in existence. But what the Lord is telling us is for every external sin, there is also an internal sin. And if you let me take care of the internal if you let my presence reside in you and block the internal temptation, the external temptation will never win, ever. And if we walk in the presence of the Lord, if we live in the presence of the Lord, if we reside in the presence of the Lord every waking moment of our lives, then it doesn't matter what the temptation that the enemy throws our way is, doesn't matter in the least, because the reality is the presence of the Lord is uplifting and encouraging us, and we'll win the victory if we submit our will to Him. It's necessary. And sometimes we go through this crap just so that the Lord can show His strength in that situation. 
Sometimes we go through it just so that the Lord can teach us how much we need to lean on Him. The problem is, is very often we never figure out what He's trying to teach us because we just give in. We just let the enemy have his way with us. Yeshua showed us that the temptation can be overcome. And he showed us in his humanity. Sure, he's 100% God, he's 100% man. Absolutely, I'll give you that. But I don't think he overcame that temptation because he was God. He overcame it in his humanity by the overflow of the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, the mantle of the Spirit of God that was upon him so that he could show us that it is possible for us because that same presence of the living God resides within us. That same mantle is upon us, a double portion of it. There's no temptation the enemy could throw at Yeshua that would throw him off track. There's none that he can throw at us that should throw us off track. The only way it can is if we're not walking in the presence of the Lord and the mantle of the Ruach HaKodesh as has been given to us as believers in Messiah. And more importantly... He has shown us that He has restored the dominion, power, and authority that we gave to the enemy that was given to us by God over things of this world that we handed over to the enemy that He tries to use against us over and over and over again, but it has been restored into our control, which means we can, in fact, speak healing. We can, in fact, speak deliverance. We can, in fact, speak broken chains. We can, in fact, tell the dead to rise. We can, in fact, tell the, the lame to walk and the blind to see and the, the deaf to hear and those that can't speak to open their mouth and proclaim the word of the Lord. We can, in fact, do these things because the power and authority of God has been given to us through the mantle of the Ruach HaKodesh that has been placed upon us. We have been restored to where God had first created us to, so that ultimately we can be restored for all eternity what God created us for, which is to reside in His presence. And you know what happens when we walk fervently in His ways? Lives are changed and hearts are saved. Look at how many lives came to faith in Messiah because He spoke healing over them. Look how many lives came to faith in Messiah because the disciples spoke healing because they walked out the calling. There were thousands in one day just from seeing the tangible presence of the Lord in the Ruach HaKodesh fall in Acts chapter 2. Thousands in one day. And there were hundreds being added daily from then on. How awesome is that? And we've been given a double portion of that. We've just got to walk in it. We've got to submit to His will and allow Him Allow him to operate in our lives in such a way that it can change this world. That's what he gave it to us for. So that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Abrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you. We praise you and we adore you. We thank you, God, that you have gone above and beyond anything we can ever imagine in order to make us right, in order to make us righteous and holy before you, in order to allow your presence to be in our midst, in order to impact us and, and overcome us with the mantle of your Ruach HaKodesh. Father, we repent as individuals for our failure to walk faithfully in your ways, for our failure to walk faithfully in your presence and in your power of your Ruach and the mantle of the Spirit that you have put upon us. Father, we repent of our ways and we ask you, God, to uplift and, and to, uh, to, to strengthen our reserve, our resolve to walk with you. Father, we ask you to strengthen our desire to hand our lives over entirely to you so that your mantle can have complete and total control in our lives. Father, 
<coughs> excuse me, I ask that as you continue to restore us in your presence, as you continue to restore us day in and day out into the image and likeness of our Creator and the emulation of our Messiah, Father, I pray that you not forsake speaking into our hearts and our lives and, and calling us, yanking at our heartstrings to touch others' lives. Father, you have placed us here. You have bought us by your blood, by the blood of the Lamb, that we could be restored, that we could be renewed, that we could be saved so that we can touch the world around us for your kingdom. So, Father, empower your Ruach in our lives to impact this world for the kingdom of Messiah. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray and everyone says, Amen.